Hello, and welcome to the Fourth U Dimension podcast. My name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education at the Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York. This podcast is a production of our religious education program, and this is particularly part of our Getting the Message series, which features a deeper dive into the reflections from our Sundays to look at the meanings, ideas discussed, and just have some conversation about the topics that are covered in our Sunday Reflections. Thank you for joining us uh, as part of this podcast. We do have included the audio for our reflections, so you can have a listen to that right now. Good morning, friends. I talk a lot in my writing and in my preaching about ancestors. Ancestors are an important part of my theology and my practice. And I imagine that when I talk about ancestors, my ancestors, most people imagine that I am talking about someone who looks like me. This morning, I am inviting you to imagine our shared Unitarian ancestors, the transcendentalists. And you might be wondering, because when I told people I was preaching about the transcendentalist, many of them wondered to me aloud, what do transcendentalists have to do with me? A bunch of privileged white New Englanders traipsing off into the woods to commune with nature, withdrawing from society, spreading this ideology of individualism. What I want to tell you is don't sleep on the transcendentalists. I bet they have more to teach us than you think and probably have more in common with you than you realize. While today we herald the New England transcendentalists as heroes, as fathers and mothers, mostly fathers of our faith, in their own day, they were most definitely not heroes. In Unitarian communities, the transcendentalists were fringe at best. Their ideas were considered by many to be extreme. These youngsters, they were youngsters, were upstart radicals who challenged church authority. They questioned the fundamentals of church dogma and teaching, instead championing free thought and self-determination. They sought a faith that would be more real, more relevant to their own lives. Transcendental, because they longed for something more transcendent, a more transcendent experience beyond the mundane details of human life, and especially beyond a dry and tedious rationality. Instead, they yearned for a more spiritual connection, a more direct connection to the divine. And as with any movement, Transcendentalists were not always of one mind, but together 
they introduced new ways of thinking about one's relationship to self, one's relationship to community, and one's relationship to God that continue to inspire and to challenge us today. Among those who you might be most familiar with is Ralph Walder Emerson. Emerson was the old man of the bunch in his 30s. His early career was as a teacher and later a Unitarian minister. He would probably be considered not a very successful minister. He resigned from his first post after only three and a half years. By all accounts, he was well-liked by the congregation, but Emerson felt stifled by church teachings. He had real problems with church rites, such as communion. Despite his falling out with the church, he remained a popular essayist and lecturer. When he was 33, he published the essay Nature, which set forth some of the foundational viewpoints of transcendentalism. Emerson argued that God is best encountered not in a stuffy church, listening to boring sermons about your Unitarian ancestors, but instead out in nature. God, Emerson argued, is revealed to us in the beauty and perfection of the natural world. We have only to remove ourselves from the oppressive noise and busyness, the distractions of society. But it's this next thing that marks Emerson as the true Unitarian iconoclast. In 1838, Emerson is invited to deliver the commencement address for Harvard Divinity School. This is the seat of Unitarianism. His controversial speech set off a firestorm, a kind of line in the sand between an old guard and a new generation of thinking. In his speech, his speech to a class of new Unitarian ministers their professors and local clergy. Emerson argued against religious superstition and dogma. He discounted miracles. He questioned why we even need to be teaching that in the first place. He contested the importance of scripture, instead privileging direct spiritual experience. He called out lifeless and uninspiring preaching. Emerson advised that religion, real religion, need not be mediated by a preacher, but could be better developed through one's own intuition. Needless to say, this did not go over well in a room full of clergy. Emerson was denounced by the leadership of the day. 
But rather than retreat or apologize or look for some conciliatory common ground, Emerson doubles down. Three years later, he publishes Self-Reliance. Emerson argues that institutionalized religion only hinders our ability to grow spiritually, mentally, as individuals. He encourages us to free ourselves from the constraints of conventional society, replacing the laws of humans with the laws of nature. He stressed instead individualism, personal responsibility, nonconformity. This theme of individualism follows Emerson and runs deep in our contemporary understanding of Unitarian Universalism. Emerson argued that we are each keepers of truth. We are each our own authority. Even in his own day, Emerson's contemporaries warned of the dangers of this line of thinking taken to an extreme conclusion. Fellow transcendentalist Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, for example, warned that Emerson's stress on self-reliance and individual fulfillment could lead to what she called ego theism, a kind of reverence of the self as God. Similarly, his young contemporary, Carolyn Healy Dahl, expressed concerns, concerns about Emerson's self-centered views. She described them as extravagant and unsafe. Many of Emerson's contemporaries tempered their exploration of the self with a commitment to the community, and more importantly, a commitment to their understanding of the common good. We can see more clearly how transcendentalist thought translated to one's relationship to community through Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau may be best remembered for his stint at Walden Pond and his subsequent book, Walden. Thoreau spent two years, two months, and two days at a remote cabin on Walden Pond as an experiment in simplicity in nature. The 29-year-old Thoreau attempted to live out transcendentalist thinking alone in the woods where God and his very self might be revealed to him in nature. But Thoreau's was not an isolated life of self-reflection, divorced from worldly concerns. It was during his time at Walden that Thoreau wrote his essay, Civil Disobedience. A lifelong abolitionist, Thoreau had long ago stopped paying his taxes in protest against the institution of slavery. When Thoreau publicly condemned the US invasion and occupation of Mexico, 
viewing the whole endeavor as not only an example of American imperialism, but also as a plot by Southerners to expand slavery in the Southwest. He was arrested by the sheriff for tax evasion. Thoreau only spent one night in jail. He was released the next day when someone, probably his aunt, paid his taxes against his wishes. Thoreau argued that it was not enough, not enough to silently and righteously oppose slavery and war. One needed to be more engaged. He reasoned that if government tries to require us to obey unjust laws, people of conscience have a responsibility to break the law. Unlike Emerson who advocated for a remove from the distraction of society, Thoreau and other more socially active transcendentalists drew a connection between self-examination and one's relationship to community. They understood that the personal moral development needed to be put to some purpose beyond individual righteousness. What, after all, is the point of being a good and just person if the world around you is consumed in the decay of injustice? And so this relationship between self and community is rounded out by a relationship to God, a new kind of Trinity. Though the transcendentalists had real questions about Christian dogma, they did not question God. In fact, their questions and challenges to dogma and scripture and tradition and authority were precisely because they believed that these things kept them, keep us from a more true, more real, more relevant relationship with God. Whether that God is imagined as a benevolent father or the law of nature. When Thoreau was near the end of his life, his aunt Louisa asked him if he had made peace with God. To which Thoreau replied famously, I didn't know we had ever quarreled. This transcendentalist trinity between self and community and God is well reflected in the life probably best reflected in the life of Theodore Parker. For Parker, this work of understanding self and understanding God while individual was not a selfish or self-centered exercise. For him, a natural outcome of our understanding of God would be fidelity to God's law, right relationship 
among God's creation. What you today might call justice. Parker believed that we are held by God and we are accountable to God. And what that accountability looks like is the creation of justice. It was Parker's abiding belief in God and belief in that accountability to God and by extension to each other that animated what we know of his call to justice. Parker was a lifelong and active abolitionist. He was a leader in the resistance to the fugitive slave law, which demanded that citizens be complicit in capturing escaped slave people, in, in capturing escaped enslaved people and returning them to bondage. Parker operated part of the Underground Railroad and is reputed to have written his sermons with a loaded pistol at hand as he harbored people escaping slavery and hiding from hunters. You perhaps have heard Theodore Parker paraphrased, the arc of the universe is long and it bends toward justice. More fully, Parker wrote, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is long, is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can only divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends towards justice. Though he could not claim to fully understand the moral universe, Parker made it his work to try to divine what he could by conscience. While we may remember that a goal of the transcendentalists was to know oneself in order to have a closer relationship to God. Theodore Parker reminds us that a closer relationship to God must be in the service of God's law, justice. Wherever you find God, wherever you think to look for God in the grass, in the night, and the mystery and the lives of your neighbors. In your very own heart, may you carry with you the earnest faith and devotion of our transcendentalist ancestors. May you shine it out in your own acts of devotion and service. We'd like to extend a special note of thanks to the Reverend Kimberly Quinn Johnson, who delivered this message uh, entitled Looking for God on November 15th, 2020. Uh, today, I have joining me uh, Reverend Skylar Vogel, who is our senior minister at Fourth Universalist Society, 
and we're going to just discuss some of the meanings and especially the history uh, involved in all of this that was discussed in the sermon. So Reverend Schuyler, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. So one of the things that really stood out to me from this reflection uh, is thinking about the history. Uh, I know at the beginning of the message, she said something along the lines of that often we think of these transcendentalists as these uh, privileged white men who like to go hide in the forest. Uh, and I, I think that sometimes seems a little bit of a fair uh, characterization of, of this group of people. Uh, but I don't think it's a whole characteriza characterization. It doesn't really give the full history of their lives, even if at times they may have tried to run away from problems. What do you think uh, about the transcendentalist as a whole? What, what appeals to you in thinking about them? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think Reverend Kimberly did a great job of holding in, in tension and in balance the, uh, the complexities of, of that movement and those individuals. You know, they were as, as a whole, obviously, uh, they were white, they were uh, well off, uh, many were Harvard educated. They were, they were an elite group by and large, um, not entirely, but, uh, but by and large they were. Um, I think uh, we should definitely keep that in mind. Um, some of their philosophy and theology does not uh, speak to us today in the way that maybe we would think it would be. Uh, Emerson's emphasis on self-reliance and, and individualism certainly is something that I think many of us Unitarian Universalists today would would hear and read and listen to and think, gosh, that sounds that sounds kind of right wing. Uh, you know, the idea that like, oh, you can just, uh, you know, depend on yourself and, and you'll be OK. Uh, anyone can kind of, you know, follow your, you know, rely on yourself and you'll be OK. I, I think most of our our theology today sees that as problematic for for good reason. I mean, we, we live in a world that is highly interdependent. We, we see the, the dangers of individualism, even with wearing masks, right? Uh, people who refuse, um, you can be very, you can be very self-motivated and, uh, and there's a real dark side to that. So, um, so I think their legacy is complicated in, in, in that way. Um, but I also think there's a lot of really positive things that have come out of the transcendentalists. I think the first thing to think about is they were definitely white people uh, and they were definitely people like Thoreau who would went off to the woods and, and gets kind of mocked for, oh, he's taking a little vacation and he went and got lunch at his mom's place and Emerson was really owned the land and you know he did laundry in town. And, and that's all true, but Thoreau never claimed that that wasn't true. Uh, you know, he, he, never, he never made any kind of deceptive claims to what he was doing. He was just doing what he was doing. Uh, so I think that's important, right? So like the deception that our, our ignorance about where he was and what he was saying is on us, not on him. Um, you know, he went to live in the woods and tried to be intentional about his life and um, did not claim that he had any other thing that he was doing. Um, so I think that's important. Um, I also think that it, you know, that there is a tremendous amount of wisdom that came from their work. Uh, and Reverend Kimberly spoke about Thoreau's refusal to pay taxes and being thrown into, into jail. Um, you know, it was one of the first public acts of civil disobedience that our country witnessed. Uh, it inspired uh, Mahatma Gandhi in India. It inspired uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, the influence of the transcendentalists were, was far and wide for many, many years and still that day, in addition to being the beginning of the American environmentalist movement uh, and turning Unitarianism from an enlightenment religion to a more of a romantic 
religion at the heart. You can just go on and on about all the many contributions that they have to offer. Right. And I think something that you really hit on there was this tendency that we we disconnect people from their history. Uh, you know, these these were specific people existing at a specific time, and then even like you know when we learn about them in in AP American literature uh, back in high school, we we hear about you know their ideas of these self reliance that be out in nature. We hear about that, but we don't you know I I don't remember hearing oh they were abolitionists and they did this thing and they were involved in this political action. You didn't you didn't hear that. You heard. He went out and lived in the woods, and, and that's it. Like this is this is, and then now he's recognized as an important figure in American literature, sort of thing. It's not uh, you're not given him in his whole context, just like they often do with a lot of of different figures. And you know, I think on the same level, like as uh, liberal religious folks uh, often have that same tendency that that we think that we are the most enlightened and that we need to discount everything that's come before us. And often that like is at the expense of not paying attention to the history that maybe got us to this present moment. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it, it's so important to have context. Uh, Ember, you know, because uh, we've been reading similar things that you know, abolitionists today, you think about abolitionists and it seems like the obvious moral choice, right? You're against slavery. But during the time of the transcendentalists, abolitionism was really radical. Uh, abolitionists were people that you did not, if you wanted to be a respectable citizen, associate with. Uh, you know, to be an abolitionist was to be uh, considered akin to being a communist or an anarchist or, or something that is very edgy. Um, and so for a lot of these abolitionists who were also transcendentalists, they were, there was an edginess to them. Uh, a lot of them supported John Brown, who, you know, uh, you read history about John Brown was, was hardly uh, a, a, a moderate fellow. I mean, he was all for armed insurrection to protect and liberate slaves and was responsible for killing people uh, in, that, in that mission. Um, and the transcendentalists, including people like Emerson, were like, let's fundraise for that guy. Um, that's it's, that's intense, um, and it and it doesn't come without cost either. I mean, I think you look at transcendentalists. Um, a lot of them were wealthy and privileged, and there were some that that risked a lot for their for these causes. Um, I think about Bronson Alcott, who is the father of Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women. Uh, Alcott was one of the most pioneering uh, educators in in early America, and he he didn't believe in in uh, you know. Uh, physical violence against children. He believed in culturing in the mind. Uh, and he was also really, he believed in integrating his classrooms. Uh, and there was an opportunity when he started the school that he was gonna let in um, uh, black children. And all his friends, uh, everyone in the, in, this, in the culture said, that's, that's a terrible idea. Uh, you will lose your school. Parents will not let their kids go to school with black children. And Bronson Alcott said, I don't care. It's the right thing. I'm going to do it. And all of Bronson's friends were right. The parents pulled out their kids and Bronson lost his school. Uh, and, uh, and Bronson was constantly broke. Um, and he could have had a very successful school if he did not compromise his values. But he, he, he did. Uh, he, you know, he went full force into it and, uh, and did what he thought was right and help push the conversation a little bit forward. So 
so some of them are very privileged and some of them also have did sacrifice a lot for their values. Right. I think you really can't discount that that sacrifice for your values. I think that's that's very true that, um, it, you know, sometimes it's that case of what are we doing with this privilege? Like, it, you know, if they were dedicating their lives to abolishing slavery at a time when nearly everybody else was like, that doesn't seem like a very reasonable idea. Uh, that, that's a, that's a pretty big way to risk their privilege. Um, so I think that, yeah, they can give us a lot of inspiration there. Uh, I do think that, you know, the, that some part of the, 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 a part of the vein that has continued on in their thought has, like you said, become much more that self-reliance and like, let's, let's go back to nature, sort of the trend. Uh, they've, they've forgotten the radical part and kept like the, let's, let's go, uh, live in a commune. You know, I know, <laughs> uh, one of the, th I've seen a meme a million and a half times and, however well-intentioned uh, that somebody will share that says like, oh, let's get $50,000 together and go buy some land and live in a community together. And, you know, everybody shares it. And I'm like, guys, every, every, like a lot of people have done this. It, it takes a lot of work to go intentionally <laughs> build a community together. Uh, but it's become like this, this kind of obsession, like that we need to go reach pristine nature, which to, to some level has been linked in, in many ways to colonialism, like that need to go grab this new land and make the right society on it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I worry that, that, you know, some of their message seems to have, have been lost, that this, this radical edge that we heard of both in this uh, reflection, but also in, in our readings of history, that that, that radical edge has, has been lost. Um, yeah, uh, I think I think it has. I think that this key about transcendentalists being deeply unpopular is really important and can't be forgotten. Um, and and recognizing that these efforts to remove yourself from society, which was, you know, at the time they were there was a whole era in American history when utopian communities were very in. Uh, there was a, you know they, they were experiencing the rise of industrial societies. There was. Uh, a feeling that was bad uh, in some subject, some moral way. Um, Thoreau talked about seeing the train. I mean, we go to, go to Walden Pond now. I had this image growing up that Walden Pond was this like remote, desolate wilderness. It's far less, it's far more in the woods than it ever was then. Uh, he could see a train from his from the pond. I mean, there's a train that went by multiple times a day when Thoreau was there. Uh, New England was far more deforested then than it is now. Uh, and he was, you know, he wasn't, he was, he was close to things. Um, but I think this idea that people wanted to try to recreate their societies apart from the society that was corrupted was very popular. And it almost across the board, it failed. Um, another big transcendentalist was a guy named George Ripley, um, who was running, running these circles. He started a community called Brook Farm. And, uh, and one of the things that we learned from him and from that was that, uh, you know, people, people act badly no matter where they are, no matter how intentionally. And it was a beautiful thing for a short time and then it became corrupted and there was a fire and that didn't help. But remember, I think your instinct, right, is really true is that you can't escape society's problems um, by leaving, going off into the woods or anywhere else. You have to face them. And that's part of our responsibility is to face them uh, with courage rather than try to escape. I suppose to tie it also to some of the themes that we've been working through in, in the RE content that has been coming out. You know, we've been talking about community and this month was also talking about community care. And, uh, you know, it's, 
being involved in community, it's not always easy. Uh, being involved in society is not always easy, uh, but you know, we, we have to engage in it. Like just, just running away just means that we're creating a new society in a different form in a different spot. If we aren't engaging in society to create the change that we want to see and to help others, then, you know, it's, it's ultimately just going to be a, a cycle that we need to, we need to learn from this history. Like this is uh, why uh, even as somebody who would, you know, be described as like this progressive theology sort of person myself, uh, like that, that I still find it very, very helpful to study history and learn about these past movements and to think about what mistakes they made so that I'm not making the same mistakes. There's no, there's no reason to, to go make the same mistakes that somebody's already made. Um, so, you know, it, it really is key for us to, to learn a little bit more from the history of, of the people that are the, the uh, forebearers, not, not forefathers, uh, the forebearers of, of where we are now as, as part of the UUA. I think that's absolutely right. Um, we have to learn history to not repeat it. And I think the other, I mean, to piggyback off that, I think the other, the other big lesson that history has for me as, as a, as a almost history teacher, had I not gone into ministry, is that history is also very hope-inducing. And it's hope-inducing not only because there are examples of people who have fought the good fight long before any of us were alive um, and fought fights that we don't even remember, but, but we're trying their best. But I think it's also hopeful in a more subtle way, which is that I think a lot of the despair that people feel in the world today is because they don't understand why bad things happen in this world now. They don't understand the roots of some of the systematic injustices that we face, the, the delusions and disinformation uh, that pervade this country and the world. And, and that's part surprise where people were raised in certain bubbles and they say, well, I don't understand how all these people could vote for Donald Trump. And that's, that's disheartening and it creates cognitive dissonance because it doesn't make sense for their version of history. But there's a history out there that nothing comes out of nothing. Right. So like if you read the history about why things are the way they are, why America is the way they are, it's no longer surprising that 70 million people would vote for Donald Trump. If you study the history, um, the the cruelty, the the illogicalness, the the belief and fantasy and, the, you know, putting your head in the sand, all that stuff existed back when the transcendentalists were around. Um, Part of it's human nature. Part of it is that we're all building off each other, whether we're liberals or conservatives. And it, I think, creates a sense of hope that we are not, our illusions and our misunderstanding is not, it, you know, is not based on nothing, but is the reason why the world is today is because very clear things have happened. And just because we don't know what they are, we can learn that and be like, this makes sense now, at least I can understand. And I think through understanding of history, comes a deep sense of peace of mind. I think that's an excellent place for us to end our reflections. I would like to, to forewarn any uh, future listeners that uh, both Reverend Schuyler and I uh, considered careers in history. So on this podcast, you may uh, encounter further historical reflections. Uh, we'd like to thank all of you who have joined us both on the new YouTube version of Getting the Message as well as the podcast. And thank you. Uh, Reverend Schuyler for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for Ember for, for leading us in conversation.
Okay, and we will see you all later. Leave a like or a comment on whatever platform you are listening to us on.